If you haven't done so already this morning, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there, Exodus 3. This is the, the call of Moses, basically. Summer, we are looking at the life of Moses um, and looking to him and to answer the question, what does it look like to trust God? What does Moses have to teach us about trusting God on a deeper, richer, uh, fuller uh, level in each one of our lives and each one of our circumstances? What does that look like? And we're looking to Moses for this brief season to see, us, to see what he has to show us. Before I read this uh, passage, I want to ask you a question just to kind of uh, along the lines, it's meant to prepare our hearts to receive this passage and to receive what's, what's going to be said. You think about uh, the call of Moses as part of a, a, a much broader story of God redeeming the Israelites, freeing them, taking them out of bondage, taking them out of slavery, and putting them into a position where they will to worship and follow God uh, freely. That's the, the gist of it. And this is a huge storyline in the Bible, constantly uh, reflected upon and, and looked back to, because it it sets. Uh, there's there's so much that goes on here that's so much that's so true of our lives as Christians. Christ coming and, and freeing us from what? From the bondage of sin and death, freeing us from that so that we can have lives of, of freedom and, and worship of Him. And my question for you this morning is basically: Is that your story? Is that the story that you use actively to explain who you are, what you're doing, where you're going, to explain the the nuts and bolts of your life? Is that your story that you are clinging to, that you're resting in on a functional level? Not in your head, I believe this story, I sent to it, but I'm using this story, the story of the gospel, to explain my life. Here's an example. Uh, Some time ago I heard on the radio a story of a man named Kevin now, Kevin um, had um, epilepsy, which means that he'd had these seizures, okay? I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, and I play one on TV, but that's basically what would happen. He would have these seizures, and he would either have these seizures or he would even black out. And it could happen anytime, even if he's driving. He could fall prey to this. And so the, 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 what was prescribed to him is that he would have surgery, that he would have brain surgery to relieve him of this. Again, this is over my head, and but this is what, what he did, what was prescribed. Had this brain surgery, and uh, had the surgery, went through, and it was success, successful for him, it worked for him, and life went on as usual. But he noticed a couple different things about him. He had these um, different uh, desires, if you will. Like, for example, his, his appetite was different after the surgery. Uh, he was desiring food that he didn't have an interest in before, and it just was just revved up and ranked up in his, into, in his life. And his desire for his wife was stronger, if you will, in a more intimate way. It was much more stronger in his life. Again, life goes on for Kevin. And one day, the police knock on his door in not a very kind way, and they arrest him, and they want Kevin's computer. And when Kevin hears that they want his computer, he knows why they're there. He's arrested, he's taken away, and he's being arrested because there's images, there's there's things on that computer that he should not be looking at, that he should not be having. And so he's got some serious jail time in front of him because of what he's been downloading and, and participating in. 
And so he finds a lawyer, and he's going to put together, you know, how am I going to defend myself? How am I going to get out of this, basically? And he comes up with this defense. He pleads guilty to the charges, that he's guilty of, of having these things, but he does so on the basis that he has complete lack of neurological control. He's going back to his brain surgery. It's, it's that moment that, that changed things about me, and there was a sense of, uh, because of that, I lost some kind of control in this area. Uh, I lost my filter. I lost any kind of, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing, and that was his case, blaming it on his brain surgery. Yes, I did it, but I lost control, and the reason I lost control is because of the surgery that I had. Now, the prosecuting, prosecuting attorney responded by, okay, if you're saying you've lost control and that's why you did it, why did you only look at it at night? Why was it only in those dark moments when you were alone? How come you didn't look at this? If you don't have any control over this, how come you seem to have some control during the day, during the working hours, that you weren't looking at this kind of stuff? It was only at night that you were participating in this, basically pushing back on this story that, it, that, you, know, that you didn't have any kind of control, that it was your brain surgery that made you do it were damaged in some shape or form. What Kevin was doing was taking that, that, that story of my surgery and what had happened to me to explain his circumstances, to explain his actions. And that's why I ask you, what story are you using to explain your life? The things you do and don't do. What are you saying is the root cause of those things? Is it the story of the gospel or is it something else? Again, Exodus is the story of the gospel. It's a story of God's salvation for us. Him taking us out of bondage and putting us into a position where we have the freedom to worship him. This call of Moses that we're about to read here in a moment is, is the beginning of God pushing and, and leading us in that direction. So as you're able, let's stand together and let's read God's word. Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This is God's word to us. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jericho, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush was on, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, We'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 11. 
But Moses said said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father God, we uh, pray that we would meet with you in these moments that you would cause our hearts and minds to linger upon your truth, upon your story that you have given to us, and help us to live out of it. Teach us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. When you are in a, a dating relationship, the, the object or the drive is to, is to get to know that other person, to spend time with them, to have conversation and relate to them where you're getting to know who they are. And one of the two ways, the significant ways, uh, my wife and I got to know one, one another was one way was meeting our parents. That, that, that moment that magical moment, you might say, where you got to meet the parents, so to speak. And I can remember uh, bringing Janelle to, to meet my parents. And it was kind of a unique time. It was kind of an all-for-one kind of package deal uh, because I brought her to my sister's wedding where she not only met my parents, but she met the whole clan, okay? She met my grandparents. They were still living at the time. And, uh, of course, she met my sister and her now husband. She met everybody, and I can just imagine... If if I was in her shoes, just kind of overwhelming that would be, meeting everybody all at once. Uh, another thing that we did was I took her to one of my favorite spots uh, growing up as a kid, uh, my grandparents' place down in, in Beaufort that they used to own and used to have. And I brought her down there for the weekend, and my grandmother was, you know, my gra- both my grandparents were living at the time, and so got to spend time with them and just got to spend time there, just sharing with her some of the special moments and special memories that I had there. And that's how she got to know me. That's one of the two ways that she gets to know who I am, my, my history, my background, and what makes me me. Now think about it like this. Say she came to me and she said, um, you know, John, I want to get to know you. And I would say, that's great. And, that's, and she says to me, well, one of the ways I'm going to get to know you is to know that you are self-centered and bossy. I would say, well, you don't, I don't think you know me, know me long enough to know that can be true of me. In other words, you see how backwards that is. You don't go to somebody and say, this is who you are, and so I'm going to try and get to know you. You get to know somebody to discover who they are. Now, sometimes we can do that with God. We can make these assumptions, God, this is who you are, and so I'm going to get to know you. We have these things that I'm just assuming that you're like this, when that may not be the case, or it may not be how you think he really is. The part of the reason I bring that up is there's so much in this passage that, that God shows us who he is in these words, in the appearance in, in appearing in the bush, in how he declares himself to be, in the message that he wants Moses to carry out, and the mission that Moses is to carry out. There's so much that we learn about him, and it's meant to drive us to a deeper trust of him. And so what I want to do with this passage is what does this passage teach us about knowing God, knowing who he is, and what does it teach us about trusting him at a deeper level? And more importantly, to ask what are some of the, uh, the ways we know or what does it look like
us to nothing. Uh, trusting God means understanding his promises. And trusting God means dealing with our excuses. Trusting God means bring us to nothing or a, sense of, a deep sense of humility before him. Understanding his promises and dealing with our excuses. First, bringing us to nothing. Uh, picking up the story of Exodus uh, chapter 3, Moses is, is what? He's tending his flock, okay? He's doing his day job. Uh, you remember last time we saw Moses, he's, he had to flee Pharaoh. He's a wanted man. And he moves out and he finds a wife. He has a family and he's got a job working for his father-in-law, caring for um, the sheep. And he's out doing what he should be doing, taking them out to, to graze and participate in, in places where they can uh, be nourished. And he finds himself in Horeb near Mount Sinai, which is in this passage described as the mountain of God, which in the few chapters ahead of us, we're going to find the Israelites back again receiving the Ten Commandments. So here's Moses getting the call of God, and later on, Moses is going to walk down this mountain and bring the Ten Commandments uh, to God's people. And so as he's tending this flock, he sees this bush, and it's burning, which may not be quite as unusual as watching the bush burn, but not burn. It's not really the burning bush, but it's the unburning bush, because it's, it's not consuming the bush. It's just this flame that keeps going and going and going, and it's the presence of God there. And so it's worthy for us to, to stop for a moment and think, how often we see fire in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as a testament to God's presence with his people. Abraham experienced the fire. It was God's presence with him. The Israelites, when they're going to be led out of, out of uh, Egypt, fire is going to lead part of that way for them. The New Testament, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, what do we see there? We see flames of fire. It's the presence of God with his people. But there's something else about this unburning bush. The idea of an unburning bush has so much to teach us about who God is. And it teaches us that God is utterly independent. You see, when, it, when a bush is, is burning, when a fire is burning, what's it doing? It's consuming that, uh, that wood, for example, to give it fuel so it can have fire. But with this bush, it's not consuming the bush. It's not using the bush as fuel, so to speak but it's just burning independent of that bush. And it helps us to see that God is completely independent, that he doesn't rely on anything or anybody to give him life. He is utterly independent. What what does God say to Moses as he draws near? He says, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. My presence here makes this holy ground. And Moses is forced to take off his sandals and to deal with this. Well, how does Moses take all of this in? On the one hand, he's attracted to this bush. It's like fire in our lives. We're attracted to fire. It's fascinating to stand by a campfire and just watch the flames. It's just something mesmerizing about it. And there's something here for Moses. He's attracted to this. And it helps us to see there's something about God. We're attracted to him. We, We want to see him. We want to know him. But the other thing is, what's the other reaction that Moses has to this? And it's the point of, of, of humbling him and, and bringing him to nothing. He can't look at it. He can't, he can't, he's hiding his face. There's something dangerous about what he's experiencing. This is holy ground. This is a holy God. This is this miracle that's before Moses. He has to hide his face. He's drawn to it, but he wants to move away from it at the same time. There's, there's something dangerous 
about it. Commentators at this point will ask, you know, the question shouldn't be, how is this bush burning but not burning? That's a great question, but a better question is, how is it that Moses is not being consumed by this holy God? How is it that he's able to, to stand or be in the presence of a holy God like this and not be consumed? Sure, the bush isn't being consumed, and that's a pretty big deal, but how is it that Moses cannot be consumed by this? Every time we see a man confronted with God, you think about Isaiah, he sees God and has this vision of God. What does he respond with? Does he give God a big bear hug? No, he, he, it breaks him. It destroys him. He's completely undone by it. And that's what's happening to Moses here. He's just undone by the, the sheer presence of God. Learning to, to trust God and to meet with him means having to deal with that we are undone and finding ourselves undone before him. And so the question, how is it that Moses can stand in the presence of a holy God, is something we bring to the New Testament, and Jesus answers that rather quickly. He says it's the cross. That's why we can stand in the presence of the holy God, because Christ has dealt with our sin. He makes us acceptable to him. Yes, we're completely undone by our, by our sin and by our guilt when we're confronted with this holy God, but the gospel gives us grace. It gives us his righteousness. And so you know you're meeting with God. You know you're trusting in him. And there's a sense of humility. And there's a sense in which you're coming undone with the reality of who you are in light of him. The second thing, trusting God means understanding his promises. Trusting him means understanding his promises. To get this, we need to remember what happened at the end of Exodus chapter 2. What's at the end of Exodus chapter 2? It's this prayer. It's this pleading on behalf of God's people saying, God, would you please rescue us, redeem us? We're under the bondage of this sin. It, life is horrible. We can't even have babies safely. Or, or every time when somebody gets pregnant, worried it's going to be a boy and it's going to be thrust into the Nile. God, you've got to help us. You've got to save us. You've got to rescue us. Enter Moses. Enter Moses on the scene and, and God raising him up. It started last week when we saw this, this mini ark. Uh, Moses was preserved by being placed in this ark, and God is continuing that process of answering that prayer by raising up Moses here. And God says to him in verse 6 that he is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, he's the God of Jacob. And what he's doing there, he's reminding Moses that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he is the God of his fathers, that he hasn't been detached, he hasn't been forgetting, he hasn't been sleeping, he hasn't been delinquent, but he still remembers his people. He still remembers the promise that he made to them. And so it's worthwhile for us to, to pause for a moment and think, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that God keeps his covenant? Well, the answer is what you think it is, that God is faithful. God is faithful to what he has promised. Remember what he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your kids are going to have a lot of kids, and your kids are going to have more kids. And we saw that, that the multiplication effect in chapter 1 of Exodus, and we see that the weight of that in the end of Exodus chapter 2, and here in Exodus chapter 3, we see, God, I'm keeping my covenant. I remember my people. I remember what's happening to them, and I'm working to free them, to bring them out of that bondage. Now think about this for a moment. God comes to Moses and says, I'm, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm, I'm going to keep my covenant, and, and there is a plan. I, under, I hear this prayer request that, that my people, the Israelites, have. 
Think how weighty this would be for Moses to hear this. Remember who Moses is. He's been the one that grew up uh, in uh, Pharaoh's palace. He received this great Egyptian uh, education, part of that rich culture. His peers, the friends that he had were other Egyptians. But as he looks out the window, as he walks the street of Egypt, he knows the Hebrews. He knows that those are his people. They're enslaved. They're, they're going through this great oppression. That life is not good for them, and he's one of them. And he tries to take things into his own hands. That's why he kills this Egyptian. He tries to, to win their favor. and Maybe some kind of revolution, something could start, something that he could, could push and make happen, but it doesn't. And he's forced to leave Egypt on the run as a wanted man, leaving as a failure. But what's God doing? He's coming back to Moses, who thinks, God is done with me. I'm too old. That was so many years ago. It, God's, you know, maybe I had a shot at that time for God to use me, and now it's over. I'm just a shepherd, and this is my life. This is my lot. But God says, no, it's not over. And he comes to Moses and says, you are my man. I know your history. I know your contacts. I know what's happened, and I still want to use you. Think about the weight of those promises and what they mean for him. Now put yourself in his shoes. All of us have failures. All of us have regrets. All of us have areas in our life we, we wish that, that we did this or we did that. And we think, God, you can never use me. I can never do that. I can never do this. And God says, yes, I can use you because I'm faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to my people. That's why this is so important for us to see and not let it just float past us because it feels so common. Where do you need to remember God's promises? What area of your life do you need to remember God's promises? What is that unsurmountable thing in front of you coming up this week, that thing that maybe you dread, the thing that you're wondering how it's going to shape out, how it's going to work? Where do you need to remember God's promises? Third thing, the last thing, trusting God means dealing with our excuses. Trusting God means dealing with our excuses. You know you're trusting God when you begin to wrestle with him. When you begin to think of this is, God, I couldn't do this because of this. And what if this happens? What if this happens? You're making excuses as why not to obey, why not to follow through and trust him. And we get that with Moses here. God's saying to him, Moses, you're the God. I want you to confront Pharaoh. The, the one that's running this huge superpower, I want you to confront him. I want you to tell him to get my, let my people go, and I want you to be the person that leads them out. And it's, on the one hand, it is completely reasonable for Moses to say, God, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Because it's been so long. If I, who am I to do that? I'm an outlaw. Okay? I, I've got a bad track record. It, it doesn't make sense that I do this. Uh, the Israelites, they're not gonna really going to trust me because they know my background. They know my history. Why should they believe me? Why should they invest in me and, and want, want me? Why should they want me to lead them in this way? So how does God respond? Does God say to Moses, you know what, you just, Moses, you can do this. You are all about this. You've got the gifts. You've got the training. Moses, you need to think positive. Moses, you need to think about what could be and not what may not be. He doesn't give him a pep talk. But God comes to Moses. He takes his concerns seriously. He takes his excuses, if you will, seriously. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't push, God, you, or say to Moses, you don't know what you're thinking. But he takes them seriously. 
And how does he respond? One thing he tells them is, the reason, Moses, you can go to Pharaoh is because I will be with you. My presence is enough. And you do a survey of some of the passages in the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, and this is God's answer. Joshua, we see this in the life of Joshua. Joshua, you're going to lead my people into the promised land, and I will be with you. What does Jesus say to the disciples before he leaves the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. Whether you're going to China or whether you're going to your, your neighbor down the road, he says, I will be with you. My presence is sufficient. You bring your excuses, you bring your objections, and God is going to push back and say, my presence is enough. Is God's presence enough for you to follow through on what he has for you? The second objection Moses is, is what name shall I give the Hebrews? What, what, what should I tell them when I come to them and say, this is the plan, what name am I to give? And there's been so much ink spilled over this, this response that we see in verse 14. God says, I am who I am. And this is basically God saying, tell them being itself has sent me to you. Being itself has sent me to you. In other words, we can never say that God was. We can't put God in the past tense. And, no longer, and, and nor do we say God will. We, we can't put God in the future tense. But God always is. He is always present. He is dependent upon nothing. Again, it goes back to that, that, that unburning bush, that flame that just burns and burns and burns. It doesn't consume anything because it's self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. He is completely independent, dependent upon nothing. And God is saying to Moses, that's who is sending you. That's the name that you are to give to these people. Later on, at the end of that passage, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac, and, and Jacob used that name, but I am in sending you to them. God is completely independent. God's power, the, the, the one that has no beginning, has no ending, has all this power, that is the name that you are sh- to be using. That's who you should be going with. So here's my closing thought. We'll close in prayer here. We're not going to be called to do something like Moses is going to be called to do, confront this superpower and lead people out like this. But each of us, because we're Christians, because we're followers of Christ, are called to follow him and called to obey him. And as you wrestle with that, what is God leading you to do? What is that, what is that thing that, that God has in front of you that you know you need to obey that you're trusting and, and struggling with? In other words, what are your excuses for not following and trusting God? What are your excuses? The, the, the beginning, I asked you, what story are you using to explain your life, to explain your decisions? What's, what excuses do you have? And God says to you, my presence is sufficient. My presence with you is sufficient. Again, the power is that God is able it, it, the, the, the question is not what you can bring to the table, but it's who's coming to the table with you. Where in your life do you need to hear God is with you? Maybe it's a sin struggle that you're struggling with day in and day out. You cannot beat this habit. Where do you need to hear that God is with you? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's in your vocation. Maybe it's in the ministry of the church. 
You feel like God is, is pushing you to, to do this or to do that or be a part of this. Or maybe it's just being more consistent in your prayer life. Where do you need to hear that God is with you? Let's close in prayer and ask that he would be with us. Father God, we are people who struggle. Uh, we are, are like Moses. Uh, we don't believe that you can really use us. We don't believe that we really have the gifts. But that's the perfect place to be because it leaves us in our weakness. It shows us our inability. And it leaves us completely on you, trusting in your sufficiency, trusting in your strength, trusting in your ability. And so I pray that you would help us to be a people who trust you because we know that you are enough. Your presence is enough. Your spirit is enough. Your promises are enough. And that you would give us the grace to trust you more fully and more wholeheartedly. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.